All right, I invite you to grab a Bible and go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a, a red one to see back in front of you. The passage of Scripture is also in your bulletin, but we are going to be bleeding into chapter 12. So I couldn't, I couldn't fit the entire Bible in our bulletin, unfortunately. So I had to leave you some space to draw pictures of me, all right, or whatever you want to do in that little space. Um, so I just encourage you, if you can get close to someone that has a Bible or, you know, if you can download it on your phone or whatever, it'd be good for you to kind of, because we will be bleeding into the uh, second half of chapter 12. So before we dive in, just, a, just one thing I want to make you aware of. Most of you probably know this already, but uh, we have Trunk or Treat that's coming up at the end of this month, October 29th. It's a great, uh, great event for our church family, as well as a great event for those that are not in church. And so we want this to be a, a beautiful time for us to love and serve uh, parents and families and kids that don't normally go to church on a regular basis and may not call themselves Christians. And that's okay. We want to we want to build a beautiful presence to them. So it's going to happen on Sunday, October 29th. So two ways that you can help us out is there's a, a stack of these little flyers. You can go back at the welcome table and grab as many as you want to and just encourage you to pass them out to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and invite people to come and be a part of that evening for us. The second thing you can do for us is you can come and you can donate candy. We need a lot of candy to pass out to these uh, wonderful, precious children. And if you've been here long, you know I've got issues with candy in the sense of like, we're gonna give good candy, amen? So we're staying away from the dollar store candy and we're gonna buy the good stuff, all right? Because the kids can tell the difference. And so we wanna make sure we bless them with good candy. We wanna be generous here, all right? So maybe you don't agree with me on that. That's okay. Just encouraging to find some good candy and bring it, all right? So if you can do that over the next few Sundays, uh, that would be fantastic. So yeah, uh, if you're just joining us, we're, just, we're in the middle of a series on the life of David. And uh, there, there are two... Um, kind of two names that are unforgettably linked to the life of David. And even if you don't go to church, you probably know these two names. The first name is Goliath, all right? Say that, let's, let's start all over. Let's rewind, all right? Pretend like I didn't even do that. There's two names that are unforgettably linked to David, all right? The life of David. Even if you don't go to church or if you go to church regularly, you probably know these two names. So the first name, super, good job. Second name, Bathsheba. Yeah, and boy, they are... They're such opposites, aren't they? So one happens kind of at the beginning of his life and kind of sets the stage for what comes after that. And it's a beautiful testimony of a man who's strong in the Lord, that trusts God, sees things that nobody else sees. And then you see another episode in David's life in chapter 11 uh, where it just is a total opposite. Um, and so, yeah, if this is your first time here, um, it can feel a little heavy today. I'm just gonna kind of warn you. Like we love the, the David and Goliath stories, they're the ones you get excited about. You know, David carrying around a cutoff head. Like, man, you can't get excited about that, amen? And so then you get to chapter 11, and it, dude, it's, it, it's pretty heavy. And so uh, my prayer is that, that, that the Lord brings conviction. Like, conviction's not bad. Like, we, we need to feel convicted at times. My prayer is that God would bring conviction in our own hearts and lives, but that at the same time um, that we would leave with hope. Um, because we, we have a God who loves sinners. We have a God who saves sinners. We have a God who chases after sinners, even when we fall in some of the greatest sin that we see here uh, in chapter 11. So yeah, that's what we're kind of going for. So I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. And I know we're gonna read the whole chapter. And, and once again, I know it's a lot. So if you get tired halfway through, you can, you can sit down and take a break. But chapter 11 starting in verse one. 
So in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so one evening, David got up from his bed and, and walked around the roof of the palace. And, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David kind of had to cover this up, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And, and when Uriah came to him, David asked him how, how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And, and David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, maybe a bottle of wine, little boys to men, I don't know. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all of his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. And so when David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, hey, haven't you just come from a distance? Like, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How, how could I go to my house to eat and drink? and lie with my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, all right, stay here one more day and tomorrow we'll send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And, and at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants and he did not go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah, the Hittite, died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. And skip down to verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came up out against us in the open, and we but we drove them back to the entrance, the city gate. And then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah, the Hittite is dead. And so David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The very same word that's used in the last verse there describing how God was displeased with him. So David said, don't let this bother you. Don't let this displease you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the tack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And so when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him 
And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the only time in chapter 11 where God is mentioned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer has been this morning uh, for us as a church and for me is that you would humble us, God, that you would bring a sober-mindedness to us, Lord, that, God, we would recognize ourselves in David this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's what I want to do this morning. If, you, if you've gone to church for a while, you've, you've probably at least heard a sermon preached on 2 Samuel 11. You may have heard multiple sermons preached on 2 Samuel 11. So anytime I, you know, I, I approach a, a familiar text, I, I do. I just really ask the Lord, say, Lord, just give me something that I've never seen here. Help me to see something that's kind of fresh and a different angle. It's not that I'm trying to be new or novel, but I'm just wanting the word of God to have its impact in my own life as well as, Lord willing, have its impact in your life. And so here's what, what I want to do this morning. I want, to, I want to pull out three truths that I think are in this text. They're in chapter 11 and then the first half of chapter 12. And, and my desire is for us to kind of embrace and live into these three truths. And, and in, in the meantime, like while we're walking through these three truths, I think these kind of combat uh, three different lies that we subtly kind of believe. We don't necessarily outright believe them by verbally saying, hey, this is what I believe. But there's, there's ways that we subtly believe these lies. So here's, here's the three truths. The first one is this, this can be me. What we just read here, this can be me. The lie that I wanna kind of combat against is this idea that this could be everyone else except me. That this can't happen to me, Lyle, I'm a Christian. I got the spirit of God dwelling me. I'm, I'm here on Sunday mornings. I, I read my Bible. This, this can't happen to me, but it can happen to everybody else. So that's kind of the first truth, first lie that we want to look at. The second one is this. The second truth is this, is that all of us in this room need a Nathan. All of us in this room need a Nathan. The lie that we subtly believe is this, is that I know myself. Like I see myself really well, so therefore, I don't need a Nathan. That's for somebody else. And then the third lie, or the third truth I want to kind of come at is this, is there's always a way back. There's always a way back. The lie of that one is, I'm too far gone. My sin is too great. There's no way God will forgive me. So let's jump in the first one. And, I, and, and honestly, I think this is the hardest one. <laughs> it just is. I mean, I, I, I feel the resistance of my own heart and I kind of feel the resistance from you. This is, this is hard to hear. So the first truth that I want us to step into and embrace is that this can happen to any one of us in this room. This can happen to you. This can happen to me. I mean, up to this point, David's like the golden boy, Right? I mean, if you just read the story of David, except for chapter 11, it's like everything is awesome. I mean, this dude is knocking it out of the ballpark. If he, I mean, he's living up to what God said about him, that this is a man 
after my own heart. I mean, you know, even when we looked at last week in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's crazy and, you know, kind of awful of what's going on there. And there was some mishaps that David did there to cause some, you know, suffering and pain. But at the heart of what David was trying to do was beautiful. He wasn't satisfied with the ark of God, which represents the presence of God to be in the basement. That's basically where it was for 20 years. It was on the outskirts of Israel and Saul didn't give a rip. It's like, I, I don't care. Let the presence of God sit on the outskirts of Israel. But soon, the very first thing that David does when he becomes king is say, no, no, no. We're bringing the presence of God to the very center of Israel. So in the essence, it's like, dude, man, that is so right on. Yeah, there's some craziness and sin there, but man, he, he made it right. And, and, and what he wanted was right on. I mean, David was the golden boy up to this point. And then we get to chapter 11 and we're going, man, what in the world is going on? We see David here in chapter 12, he doesn't go to war. And some people want to read a little more into that than what needs to be read into that. I, I don't necessarily feel like it was wrong for him not to go to war. Kings in that time didn't always go to war. But, but what happened after that is where all the wrong comes in, right? He gets up one night where he can't sleep very good. He goes and walks around his roof. He sees a woman that is bathing. He sees this woman. She's beautiful. She's, she's, she's amazing look, look, to look at. He calls for her, brings her to her palace. He sleeps with her. He finds out that she, she's pregnant. Then, then she calls for, he calls for Uriah, the soldier that's out in the field, brings him back and says, hey, man, go. Here's some wine. Here's some music. You know, go have a great time. Relax, chill, sleep with your wife. He's trying to cover up the sin. That doesn't work. He says, hey, stay for one more day. He gets him drunk. I mean, plastered. I mean, the text is very clear. David got him drunk. So maybe he'll go back and sleep with his wife. And he doesn't do that. And then David takes his own pen, so to speak, and writes a note that says, put him on the fiercest place, put him in the front and then withdraw your soldiers and make sure he gets killed. David, a man after God's own heart, David. And some of you may think, well, Uriah, you must be just someone like nobody, you know, just some dude that sort of serves in his army, probably doesn't really know him that well. No, that's not the case. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. And so those 30 mighty men are, are men who voluntarily went out into the wilderness while David was running away from Saul to protect and defend David. Uriah was one of those men, a close companion who probably David owed his life to. And David covets his wife. David goes and sleeps with his wife. He tries to lie and cover it up and then he kills him. This is a man that God says, is after my own heart. This is a man that wrote Psalm 40, verse eight, where it says this, I desire to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. This is the man who longed to do what God wanted. And here he is, a liar, a womanizer, a murderer, and trying to cover all of this up. And so here's the big truth that I think is so hard for us to kind of step into. And it's the one that we've got to embrace here or we'll live kind of like this false sort of superficial life here, that this can happen to you. If it can happen to David, it can happen to you. That the seed of some of the most awful deeds 
dwells in your heart and in my heart and in every human heart. If this can happen to David, it can happen to you. And I just want to suggest to you that if, that if you read chapter 11, and if the first question that came to your mind, that came to my mind, is how can this happen, right? How in the world can David get to a place to where he does this? Or when you look at the events that took place in Vegas and the first thing that you say in your own heart is how in the world can someone do this? I wanna make a suggestion to you that you don't know the power of sin that still remains in you. You are oblivious to yourself. And I, I would also just urge here that maybe you've been one that's kind of embraced a, a humanistic mindset toward humanity instead of allowing God to be the one that defines humanity. Because when we allow God to define humanity, we realize that the seed of this kind of action dwells in all of us. No one's immune to this. No one's at a spiritual maturity to where I'm bulletproof, I'm done. Hey man, I got it. No one's going to church enough. No one's killing it as a Christian. No one has a, a perfect, great marriage to where they're, they're kind of exempt from something like this can happen. Look, look guys, if you do not think that this can happen to you, then you're in a very, very dangerous place. And I would also say that you're making an enormous large step toward doing it. If it can happen to David, it can happen to me. It can happen to you. So I, I get, man, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to paralyze us with fear. I'm not trying to, um, you know, mound us with a lot of guilt and heaviness. My desire is that we would be awakened to the power of the flesh that still remains in us, that we won't minimize it, dismiss it, and think it's not a big deal. Because when you step into this, if, if you step in and live out this truth, I, I think there's a couple things that'll happen. You'll, you'll begin to see this more and more in your life. One of them is this, is that you will be more gracious toward those people who sin. Like if I, if I get that I have the capacity to do something as gross and awful, as sinful, as we see here in chapter 11, then when those people who sin, they feel a presence about me that is more gracious than it is condemning. And it doesn't mean that we don't confront with truth. It doesn't mean that we don't come and, 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 and you, know, you know, confront people in their sin. It just means that when I step into this truth, there's a way that they're experiencing me that feels very gracious even in the midst of speaking some hard truth. That's one thing. If you step into this truth, this is what's gonna be cultivated in you. The second one is this, is that you're no longer gonna tolerate these little seeds of jealousy, these little seeds of envy, these little seeds of revenge fantasies, these little seeds of sexual fantasies, this, these little seeds of selfishness, because, because those little seeds can grow into something that's really bad and terrible. And the reason why we're not gonna tolerate them anymore is because it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation. Are you following me? It's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation. Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, right? Anybody? I know that was kind of a curveball. Like, I'm not ready for that one, right? Mr. Miyagi, where'd that come from? Karate Kid, anybody a Karate Kid fan? You know what I'm talking about? I'm kind of dating myself a little bit. And I shared with you a few weeks ago that I had a crush on Elizabeth Shue. But beyond that, right? Other than that, 
I'm good. I still, my wife, one, one person, right? One woman, I mean, right here. But here's one of the things in the midst of all the things that he said to Daniel's son. Here's one that he said that stuck with me. Listen to what he says here. The best way to avoid a punch is not to be in a place where you are likely to get into a fight. Amen. The best way to avoid a punch is not to be in a place where you're likely to get into a fight. Translation here, Paul, the apostle Paul doesn't Mr. Miyagi was, Paul was before Miyagi, right? So, but in Romans chapter 13, Paul says this, make no provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in situations to where it's gonna be impossible for you to resist temptation. It's way easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist it. So you're no longer gonna tolerate the seeds of jealousy, envy, anger, because you recognize that they can grow into something terrible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. I know it's a long quote here, so just kind of bear with me, but he's a German pastor that was in World War II fighting against uh, the Nazi regime. But, but here's what he says about this, this um, issue of temptation and, and not letting these little things linger around. Here's what he says, in our members, there's a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. In this moment, God becomes quite unreal to us. And you see that and feel that in chapter 11. And Satan doesn't does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but look, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will in the deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there is one command, flee. Flee youthful lust, flee worldly temptations. If you're feeling under pressure and on the verge of something and emotion is welling up within you, what does the Bible say? It says, run, run. No human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. That's the line I want etched in my heart and I want etched in your heart. That's what I'm after. No human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. Truth number one, this can happen to you. This can happen to me. The seed of this kind of evil dwells in all of humanity. Number two, number two truth is this, is that I need a Nathan I need a Nathan. And the lie, like I said, that we subtly believe. I don't, I don't think people necessarily say this, right? Because it seems a little arrogant. So I don't, I've never encountered someone saying these words, but I do think we live this out. And that is this. All right, yeah, yeah, I, I know myself well. I know my propensities to sin. I know what's going on in me. I don't need a Nathan. I don't need someone else to kind of come and, and then confront me. No, I, I got, I'm all together. I don't need a Nathan. Sometimes I would say that this kind of plays out even in group life to where you, you'll come into group and you're more like this, right? There, there's greediness, not necessarily in money, but greediness with your life. 
And so it's lived out by being like this. And so you just ink out a little bit here and there instead of being really open and honest about what's going on. Because inevitably, you're believing a lie that you think, hey, I don't need a Nathan. I got it all together. I know what's going on in my interior world. I don't need somebody to come along. Look what happens here in chapter 12. Most likely there's about a year that's passed here. And look what the Lord does. After about a year, the Lord sent Nathan to David. The greatest or one of the greatest gifts that God gives to David in this moment is that Nathan comes. He sends Nathan. If you're a child of God, God always sends a Nathan. Nathan always comes. Sometimes it comes in your spouse. Sometimes it comes in your best friend. Sometimes it comes from your parents. Sometimes it comes here. Every Sunday morning when we gather together and we sing the word of God and we read the word of God, we hear the word of God, Nathan's coming. So look what happens here. Nathan kind of shares a story, kind of invites King David in to say, hey, like, like help me out with this, right? And so this is what he says. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except this one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. That's a little weird, right? Just being honest, it's a little strange, amen? So some of you guys do that with your pets and maybe Nathan needs to come and confront you about that, but thanks for laughing, I'm just teasing. So it was like a daughter to him in verse four. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, what did he do? He took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. And so notice how David responds here in verse five. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had absolutely no pity. And then in verse seven, Nathan says this, and it doesn't mean a good thing here, right? Then Nathan said to David, you are the man, not the good side of that, but the bad side of that. You are the man. So notice guys, look, what is, who does David first identify with? Think about it. Who's he first identify with? He identifies with the victim. He identifies with the one that's unjust. He identifies with the one that's been mistreated. He points out the sin of the rich man, doesn't he? And he does the very same thing that all of us naturally do, right? We do the same thing here that David did. It's easier for us to recognize sin in other people and almost impossible for us to recognize sin in our own lives. I mean, we do, like, I don't know, maybe you don't do this, but I do it every Sunday. Boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Man, this was a good one for them. Man, I wish my son was here. He needs to hear this. Yeah, oh man, I wish my uncle, my aunt, my best friend, my neighbor, they need to hear this. Like, like we're so good at seeing the sin in someone else's life, but almost impossible for us to see it in our own. One writer says it like this, that the primary task of the Christian life is not just avoiding sin. That's a part of it. We just talked about that in point one. The primary task of the Christian life is not just avoiding sin. 
It's recognizing it in our own lives. Seeing it in our own lives. That's why Nathan doesn't start with, you're the man. Right? In a bad way, right? Nathan doesn't come a guns blazing. David, you're a womanizer, a liar, a cheat, and a murderer. Repent or go to hell, right? That's what, not what Nathan does. Nathan doesn't start off with you're the man. It's the conclusion. Why? Because Nathan doesn't want to condemn David. He wants to help him see, help him recognize, help him come to confession. That's why. And since God's the one that sent Nathan, that's what God's desire is. God didn't send Nathan in order to make David feel horrible and condemn him. No, he sent Nathan so that he could recognize and see his own sin. That's why you're the man comes at the end and not the beginning. You see, look, if Nathan would have came in with the guns a blazing, then what would he have done? What would they have done? What would you have done? I know what I would have done. Defense. All right, let's go, right? I'm gonna show you where you're wrong. I'm gonna defend my actions. I'm gonna rationalize what I just did. I'm gonna justify which, I'm gonna spin this whole narrative to where I'm almost a victim here. So if, if Nathan comes with guns a blazing, you're the man, then we'll do, he, did, he would have done just exactly like all of us that we would just started defending. But look, look, guys, as one pastor says, it glorifies God when you tell the truth about someone else's sin, but it also glorifies God more when you tell that truth, that's, that person, and they repent. That's what we're after. We're after helping them see to recognize, this is why Jesus, when you think about when Jesus rolled in on the scene, he doesn't come in pointing out all our rebellion. He doesn't come in blasting all of humanity. He comes in as an individual who embodies perfectly both truth and grace, just like it says in John chapter three, verse 17, which sometimes is overlooked because of John three sixteen. but it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. So he comes embodying truth and grace, and that's exactly what Nathan is doing here. He's wanting to help David see it, recognize it. So look, guys, I'm, I don't know about you. Yeah, like I want to be a Nathan to people. I do. And that's a whole other point in of itself. But look, guys, I need a Nathan. You need a Nathan. And the reason why we need a Nathan is if, if the primary task of the Christian life, like I said, is not just the avoidance of sin, but also the recognizing of it, then I need help because I am self-deceived, right? And, and then you kind of compound that with the devil's deception. It's almost impossible for us to recognize and see our own sin. And the main reason why that's the case is because when we sin, it doesn't feel like sin, does it? When we sin, it doesn't feel like sin. It feels godlike. It feels religious. It feels fulfilling. It feels satisfying. I'm telling you what, when David was sleeping with Bathsheba, did he feel like he was sinning? No, he felt like a lover. When David was going around sending all these people everywhere, you need to go back and read chapter 11 and notice how many times the word sent is used. It kind of shows David doing all this sending, go after them, go fetch this person. Hey, go after that person. All this sending is happening on. So do you think David feels like he's sinning in that moment? No, he doesn't. He feels like he's God. 
He feels like he's a king. That's why the writer in Hebrews chapter three says this, but encourage one another daily. No, not, not once a month, you know, not oh, once a year, oh, every other day. No, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the sin's deceitfulness. And the definition of deceitfulness is this, is that my instinct is to justify. My instinct is to rationalize. My instinct is to blame others. My instinct is to spin it. Not to own it. Not to recognize it. Not to see it. I would say that many of us are, including me, are even like blind to our own blindness. Like that's how hard it is to see and recognize sin. I need a Nathan. You need a Nathan. That's one of the reasons why we we do groups in the manner in which we, we do groups. And guys, look, I, I get it, man. I, I've been in ministry long enough to know that every structure and system that you kind of put into place to, to care for the body, to disciple the body, to provide space for people to, to engage in relationships, there are, there are always holes. There's always something that's not as good as it should be. And part of that's just like we're human beings. We're flawed people. We're trying our best we can with this. And so I, I, I get all the struggles here. But here's our heart, guys. Here's, here's our heart. We want to create a space where you can have a Nathan. We want to create a space to where you can engage in relationships so that you can have a Nathan. I, I see my need, and so now we're providing a place for that to happen. So look, guys, look. Look, I... I like, like I'm not trying to, to hammer you or make you feel guilty or whatever it is. May the Lord do with it, whatever he wants to. I'm just trying to help us see, guys, look, if I have difficulty recognizing my own sin, then I need to step into a place and a space where relationships can be formed to help me see my own sin. So I need to step into a place where I can meet a Nathan. And if groups don't work out for me, then I recognize this huge need in my life and then I'm gonna find someone. I'm not going to make excuses and justify. No, I'm going to find somebody to meet with. I need a Nathan. Let's get together. I need help seeing myself. I, I'm blind to my own blindness. So who is it for you? And have you given them permission to ask those difficult questions and speak into your life? The second truth, I need a Nathan. The last one, and I'll be really quickly here. The last one is this. There's always a way back. And the lie that I'm trying to defeat in our own hearts and lives is that I'm too far gone, right? That I've done too much to come back. I mean, look what happens here in verse 13. So after Nathan shares his story, then this is what David said. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied with these precious words, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So look, the reason why 
Saul and David are so different here. It isn't because Saul sinned greatly and David didn't. No, man, this was pretty bad right here, right? The reason why there's a difference between Saul and David is that when David was confronted with his sin, he saw it, he recognized it, he confessed it. He says, look, I have sinned against the Lord. And this confession is not a, a groveling around to where he's got to you know, feel really bad about himself or just beat himself up. No, this confession is full of hope because when we expose our sin, when we bring it to light, there's hope for forgiveness because God loves sinners. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the message of Christ is this. If I cover my sin now, then Jesus will expose it in judgment. But if I expose my sin, if I bring it to light, if I uncover it now, then Jesus will cover it in grace. That's the good news of the gospel. And no, it's almost counterintuitive to what we naturally want to do. We want to hide. But the invitation of the gospel is, no, I want you to lay it bare. I want you to uncover because when you uncover, then I cover it with grace. There's a couple of Psalms that are, that are attributed to David during this period of time. And one of those is Psalm, Psalm 32. And I just want to read just the first five verses here. And I want you to notice, when did David get relief? Look what he says here. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent... What happened? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Salah. The psalmist wants you to stop, to reflect, to think. And that's exactly how some of you feel today because you're hiding. Then, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Listen to me, guys. You must uncover so that you can be covered. You must uncover so that you can be covered. David confessed his sin to the Lord and the Lord says, I'm taking the guilt away from you and you are completely forgiven. Now, how do we know that for sure? Because in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the work of Jesus Christ, just like we look back to the work of Jesus Christ. So yes, he can be fully forgiven and his guilt taken away because Jesus was the one that was condemned in David's place. Jesus was the one that earned David's salvation. Jesus was the one that earned David's forgiveness so that he can repent, so that he can come clean, so he can raise his hands and say, look, I need your help. I'm done. I've sinned against you. And it's in those moments that he brings his grace and removes our guilt and our stain and our shame because of our own sin. But listen to me, don't ever confuse forgiveness and consequences. Don't. Some of us have a tendency to confuse those and we feel like, well, maybe I've not been forgiven because my life's still horrible, right? Look, David was fully forgiven in this moment, but there were consequences to his sin. If you read the rest of 2 Samuel, man, there's a lot of wounds and pain and difficulty and suffering that comes about because of the sin. He loses the child, the child dies, his family becomes a train wreck here. So the consequences are not removed. Look guys, yes, you can be forgiven. There's always a way back, but listen to me, you cannot unsin. You following me? You cannot unsin. 
There are consequences, damages, suffering, pain that come as a result of our sin. But God fully forgives. Guys, look, there's always a way back. Some of you may sit there and go, there's no way, Lyle. Look, this is as bad as it gets, right? I mean, this is some jacked up stuff going on here in chapter 11. And David found a way back, and so it can be for you. The beautiful thing about the Bible, the point of the Bible is not humanity rising up and conquering over their own sin. Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna earn our way to God. No, the, the point of the Bible is this, that God continually pursues sinners like you and me. And he gives us grace, something we don't deserve, that even the best of people like David here can't overcome their sin. They can't do it. It's only those who cling to God. It's only those who cry out for mercy. It's only those who uncover, who come out, who say, hey, here's my stuff. I need forgiveness. It's only those who who cry out for the mercy of God that get pardoned, that get full forgiveness, that gets the guilt completely removed. Look, there's always a way back. You're never too far gone. Your sin is never too great for the grace of God. I'll close with this. Years ago, when, um, when captains would, would, would sail their ships across the ocean, there would be times when they would um, you know, kind of get into waters that were sort of unknown to them, and they didn't have the, you know, the kind of technology that we do today in order to kind of see what's underneath there and and learn what the you know, shoreline is and stuff like that. And sometimes the most dangerous times for a, a captain of a ship in this time was to when they had to dock or had to go to the shore. Um, and and guys, they just had no way of knowing the terrain here, especially if they went into a terrain that was just like very unfamiliar to them. And so in this time, um, the, the captain would have a choice. He could be arrogant. He said, I'm the captain of my ship. I can make this happen. I don't need your help, right? I, I can do this. Or the second choice is that he could humble himself. And he could say, look, I I don't know the terrain. I don't know what's underneath here. I don't know how to navigate into the shore. I I need help. And if that's what they chose to do, what they would do in this time is they would take a flag and they would raise it up on their mast and and this flag would let those that are on the shore that, that, that they, they, they need what they call a pilot. Because this flag would kind of signal as a symbol to people on the shore. It says, I need a pilot. And a pilot in that time was an individual that knew, knew the landscape there, knew the sea there, knew where the rocks were, knew where, how to kind of navigate certain ways to get to the shore or get to the dock. And so what would happen as soon as they would see that flag raised up there, a pilot would jump in his boat. He would row out to his ship and he would get on the ship and the captain would step aside. And the pilot would take over. And he would be the one that steers that ship into safety. And once that happened, the captain then would take down the flag they had there and raise up another flag so that it would give a symbol to not only the ships around them, but to certain the pilots that are out on the shore. And that flag would just symbol this. I have a pilot. I have someone that's gonna guide me through the sea. I have someone that's gonna get me safely to shore. In this time, followers of Jesus Christ wrote a hymn that we sing here quite a bit, and that hymn is Jesus, Savior, Pilot Me. Over life's temptuous sea, it's a hard word to say there, but you know what I'm trying to say. Wondrous sovereign of the sea, 
Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Look, there's always a way back. There's always a way back. But you gotta recognize that your way is bankrupt. That your way is broken. And that your way is never gonna lead to life. And you need to humble yourself and say, I need help. I need a savior. I need a pilot. I need Jesus. Let's pray together.